and welcome to another, another installment of Innovation Crush. It is me, Chris Denson, your gracious host. Uh, if you guys are tuning in for the first time ever, shame on you. But if you are, this show covers all things ideas, creativity, success, smart people doing smart things. And today, the buck does not stop. I'm here at Studio 71, right? We got the numbers. You, the numbers are correct. Okay, cool. <laughs> um, why don't you guys go ahead and introduce yourselves? Because I don't want to botch this. This is a, a, I love this dynamic okay. duo. Dynamic duo. I'll go first. <laughs> is that okay? Please. Okay. Please. I'm Reza Izzat. I'm one of the authors of Create Great Videos. I'm Jake Green, and I'm the other author of Create Great Videos. All right. So how do you guys share? How did you battle over the, the authoring title? Who gets second billing? Who I don't think it was a question billing? of first or second billing. <laughs> That's not how it really went. Uh, you know, I, I went second billing because I think, as the, was it Shaquille O'Neal who said you got to let the big dog eat? I guess you can say it that yeah. way. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm definitely Robin in the relationship, and I'm and proud to be so. Um, that's, that's super nice. Well, let's let's in case some people have been living under a rock. Let's do a little bit of what is Studio Seventy One Reza, and how did you come to be at the helm of it? Sure. Um, the, the, I'll just give you a little professional background because I think it contextualized what we do at Studio Seventy One. I started out. I've spent most of my career in sort of the talent representation business in the traditional sense. I started as an agent at a company called United Talent Agency where I was the agent for Eminem and Justin Timberlake, and I was involved in putting together the music piece from that movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou?, which was really fun and exciting. And, and trouble. Exactly. Man yep. of Constant One of my Sorrow favorite soundtracks. And many, yeah, Good job. Great story around all that. Interview over. I'm, Interview I'm over. We can thoroughly impressed. <laughs> and I uh, got recruited to join a management company that was run by a guy named Michael Green, and he was running the company. And this was, he'd started the company in the mid-2000s, and he had a big thesis that what was happening with sort of digital would allow creative people to go direct to consumer. And hopefully, if you built the right sort of infrastructure, you could capture a lot of rights, incremental rights that were traditionally going to record labels right. and, and other third parties. And so um, for the most part, that thesis didn't play out in music, like where that thesis played out in, in, in music was... You know, it was a lot more efficient to sell concert tickets, leveraging things like Facebook and things like that. But but only today are we seeing artists that are truly building themselves on platforms right. and 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 building huge careers off of it. You know, the 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 SoundCloud artists that everyone sort of speaks in a derogatory yeah. way about these days. The reality is those guys that have built massive consumer followings and are able to now monetize. Ten years ago, that wasn't really the case. And what, and what was it ten years ago, or whenever you got well, ten started? Ten years ago, there was no streaming music business. True, but as far for as that, like, talent, right? You know, talent was always the cornerstone, <laughs> and talent's still the cornerstone of our business. And of, and of course, but to like venture into this sort of newfangled yep. medium, and as and even today, where people don't necessarily take those artists seriously as they yep. would traditional artists, and that's not to say that's universal. Yep. Some people are like. I don't get it. Um, why I would take that leap of faith at, at that point in time? I'll, I'll tell you. A, that was what we were thinking. So we were very oriented and believed that this was was coming. We'd signed an artist, a, a kid named Lucas Cruikshank, who created the character Fred on YouTube. And in 2009, that was the biggest you know, thing on the platform. There was a manager here who had signed him. And when I remember when we were talking, I said, why did? Why would you sign this? I don't quite understand. <laughs> what have you what done? This is. Yeah, what is this? <laughs> And, you know, if you look at the numbers, and these were very unsophisticated sort of looking at the numbers, I remember looking at there's Universal Music Group. He's bigger than all of Universal Music Group. In fact, he's bigger than almost every artist on this platform. There must be something there. So right. let's let's see what there is there. So we somebody also in the office said he spoke, you know, if you know the character Fred, it speaks mm -hmm. in a very high-pitched voice. And somebody sort of said some version of, well, you know, the Chipmunks sold a lot of novelty records. Let's make a record. So we put them in studio um, with some really, you know, competent producers, and we made a novelty Christmas record. Um, and we connected YouTube and iTunes, and we sold 100,000 copies very quickly. No other marketing, not yep. a lot of fanfare, no radio, nothing else. And that was like, wow, the, the, we should look at what is this world this kid has actually created. And when right. you get into Fred and you can get past the, the voice for a second, it's a very in-depth world. 
And yeah. so we brought in some partners because we, 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 we didn't have all the creative firepower to sort of enhance that world. And we financed a low-budget movie, and we thought it was going to go theatrical, and we had all these grand dreams. But it ended up being very, very successful. We licensed that, that movie to, to, to Nickelodeon in 2010. The Fred movie was the highest-rated movie in I all of cable well. television. And we did three of them, and we did 25 half-hours of TV. And... Lucas had like the real ownership position in it. Like if you think about like ownership, he had a real strong position in it because he created this character in this universe. We as managers had a position in it because we put up capital and helped the marketing and all these things. And our creative partner had a had a big position in it. So everybody did very well on it. And and that sort of set off a whole bunch of light bulbs in our head that maybe this space that there's a lot more creativity it's and a brilliant. lot more opportunity in this space than maybe we we had imagined that if we look past what was at the time the skateboard video and the cute cat video, <laughs> exactly. that there's a lot of value in this space. And when you fast forward today, um, I mean, there's a lot of people who've built or told a version of this story a um, hundred times over. And I think that's one of the things that we wanted to showcase in the book. And 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 one of the things that we want to highlight that this is this is, you know, if you're not taking, you know, this creator class seriously and you may misinterpret some of the behaviors, right, because it's very youthful. Yep. Um, you're you're completely missing the mark. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Um, Jake, you, you come in from uh, the other side of the bookend, if you will, um, <laughs> going from talent to, you know, sort of writer, creator, mm-hmm. kind of explain your journey and how you guys ended up coming t- together. Yeah, absolutely. So I was 10 years ago, I had a, a book that came out that was a sort of Ferris Bueller-esque career guide and that it, it came on the back of me working for a lot of weird startups and having some just horrible career development um, stories that I wanted other people to be able to learn from. And it was cathartic to write it all down. But that sort of got me into the space where I was started working with a lot of organizations on intergenerational differences and sort of the culture clash as social media was becoming a bigger and bigger thing. And so I, again, I was living in Tennessee at the time. And so I would sort of, uh, you know, a bank would bring me in and they, they'd sit me down and they'd say, now, why are we going to have to pay attention to this Twitter thing? And then, you know, I'd spend 45 minutes telling them why I, they had I, to. I could see that guy when you did it. That was pretty good. Dude, it was. Uh, we used I to know that person. What kind of stain did he have? Quick, so. <laughs> yeah, what stain was that? Quick, <laughs> quick, quick sidebar, because I know we've got a little bit more space to breathe in this podcast than some others. At, at one point, it was me and a couple other guys, and we were touring all over the South, teaching people about like social media. And so you could show up at one of our events and for 30 bucks, uh, you know, you would, you would learn all of you, you'd learn all about Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn and you get some Southwestern egg rolls. And we always used to try to overbook these <laughs> events. Cause you know, then, then we come back and we're paying for more than gas and all that kind of stuff. And we went into this one event and we totally overbooked this room in Chattanooga. And one guy had a networking company and people were also there to network. And there was the, there was a tech problem or something and it wasn't working out. And there was a guy who was standing there and there's way too many people in the room. And, and I would only describe him as an old timer. And everyone had, <laughs> you know, everyone had their name tags and it would say like Reza Zod Studio 71. And this guy... Um, his name tag just said pep P E P. And so I'm, I'm trying to kill time. I'm doing like a little bit of crowd work, which you can appreciate as a former comedian, like trying to, and I was like, pep, there's, that's, that's a interesting name. Is there a story there? And he said, well, there is there. Would you like to hear it? And I said, sure, I'll hear it. He said, well, my granddad, his name was Ira. And my dad, his name was Ira, too. But they didn't want to call him Ira because that was my granddad's name, so they called him Junior. And when I was going to be born, when my folks was fixing to have me, they were going to name me Ira, but they didn't want to call me Ira because that was my granddad's name. They didn't want to call me Junior because that was my dad, so they were stuck. And my mama said I used to kick a lot when I was in her belly like I had a little pep in my step. So ever since I come out, I've been pep. Now my son, his name's Ira and we call him Bo and his son, (laughs) his name's Ira and we call him Ira. Now, how'd y'all get my email address? (laughs) But it was sort of, we had this mixture. He was interested. He, he had, 
he had gone to learn about uh, social media and, you know, he did some work with with some of the other IRAs that were younger than him and his family that he didn't really understand them. And so it's, I was in this space and, and was sort of realizing that regardless of, of what uh, industry people are in, they're having trouble sort of communicating across this digital divide. Right. And I knew I wanted to come out to LA and, and do more content creation, um, but my wife was finishing her medical education. And so the only way I could get involved and get started was to create digital content. Right. And so fast forward a couple of years, I moved out here and I had a web series uh, called Millennial Parents, which sort of fused those two words. And was I kept involved in the production. Pep, of the show? Pep was not. I mean, uh, obviously. A lot of parental, parental lineage. That he- yeah, yeah, yeah. He has. I'm, I'm sure Netflix is working on a special with him right now. Um, you know, out an hour outside of Chattanooga is a, just a working title. But and, and I came in to. Uh, to Reza's orbit as a content creator, and then quickly was fascinated by all the people from all the different uh, areas and walks of life and sort of interest levels who are in the Studio 71 community. Because one of the things that's most amazing is just the the hundreds and hundreds of of really prolific creators who aren't just all trying to be discovered as as entertainers. There's there's folks that are doing cool stuff in in education, and there's people mm-hmm. that are doing interesting things in short form essays and and in cooking and in piano lessons and and all sorts of things. And so Rez and I sat down, and and we thought there's a lot of there's a lot of lessons to be learned here um, from just hearing these people's stories. And let's let's have some conversations um, with some of these great creators and sort of see what starts to shake out if, if we start getting sort of a balance that would necessitate, you know, a bigger, longer form project. And the stories just ended up being so interesting and so useful and, and so tight and directed that, that that's sort of how the book came together. Beautiful. Yeah. Um, and, and the pep story specifically. <clears throat> um, uh, Reza, I think when uh, one of the, with both of you, I think it's very different angles of paying attention, right? You paid attention, like the way you recall that story, uh, you can see how you become a content creator and the way you've paid attention to like, how can you evolve a talent and especially being attentive to how culture is evolving. Um, how does that continue to play a role in how Studio 71 operates, how you operate as a leader? Because uh, it's always changing but what's you know is there a specific point you pay attention to um what is that where where does your attention focus in all the melee of content creation that goes on okay that's that's all you can unpack that question yeah yeah (laughs) there's a lot (laughs) look in the digital space there's a lot more data that's that's given to you so that there's a lot more signals that come from that than you see in tradition like if you're a stand-up finding somebody at the beginning of their career and seeing that all the sort of, I call it the doors you have to go to to get to the top of the mountain or all the stages you got to go to to get to the top of the mountain, that is a much different skill set than sort of identifying somebody who's creating content that has some momentum because you get to see some of the numbers that are behind the things, even if it's at 50,000 followers, 100,000, you know, early days in somebody's career. Um, but, 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 and this is, I think, a truism, despite all that, like what the internet has done is it's allowed a lot of talented people who may not have had the opportunity or the the the, the moxie because I think there's a like a lot of moxie that it takes to say I'm leaving whatever hometown I'm in and coming to L.A. or New York or wherever 100%. I'm going to get my career going and dealing with all the financial challenges that you know creates and then get getting through the the digital sphere is sort of evened a lot of that out. So there's all it's not that so it's allowed a lot of talented people to shine through that may not have had that opportunity but the world is finite with talent we what what Google and Facebook and all these other platforms have not done is inherently made a lot more people talented and so the question is how do you how do you find how do you, what 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 is someone doing that's resonating and the more you can understand that um, the, 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 the better off we're going to be, because I think, you know, when we're making these choices, particularly when it's in the, when it's not clear, right. You know, what we just started working with the fine brothers, right. That's pretty clear. They know how to produce content. They know how to make engaging content. They've been doing it for a long time. That's not a big exercise for us. But when you identify, like we did Matt Santoro very early on and, and watch him grow and help him grow, that's a much different sort of exercise in terms of 
of of partnering with, yeah. with people and with that, and the data does give us that but there's still a lot of touch like you know in terms of like a feel for it and and that that's all gut right there's data mixed with exactly. like i think i feel like this makes me feel that's correct all the feels that's correct um with that you know you mentioned up-and-coming talent you mentioned established talent and you guys have what 1300 ish channels right now in, in so look we operate very globally sure. so we have probably a thousand channels that are talent based and then 300 that are all tv shows mostly european because we were owned by a number of european yep. broadcasters so so about a thousand talent in our network in, in total now i come from machinima yeah right and i've seen the maker studios yep. and all the other ones who are pushing tens of thousands of channels yep. why dwindle it down to that 1000 well if your thesis is you're getting into business with talented people because you want to add value and and by the way you want to participate in that value and all of all the upside that comes on with that value you can't do like ten thousand. like like you go to staples center they can barely manage the crowd right um, so, so, so 10,000 is completely unmanageable, 50, a hundred thousand. It's a very different thing that you, you're trying to essentially compete with YouTube. That's not our business. Our business is, this is an infinite universe. There's a lot of people talking a lot of stuff on these platforms. Not all of it's super positive, by the way. And we don't want to get caught up in any of that mess, right? We want to have a very clean, well-lit, we know our talent, we know what they're about. It doesn't mean they don't make mistakes, but it just means we understand what everyone's sort of, you know, going for. Right. Which means ad advertisers tend to like to work with culturally relevant things, so hits. Uh, they don't like to work in the long tail as much or things that are just much more foreign to them. Um, so it's easier for us to package up and do our part, right, which is help monetize these creators and bring opportunity if we don't have... No, you know, it's, a stadium full of them, right? It's a Just great a, differentiator, you know, right. when companies are about money and amassing, you know, as much of a platform and reach, which is all fuzzy because, you know, who knows who's doing what real numbers and you can't manage in the well, proper sense of the, the word. <laughs> now, now, where we sit today, though, we have tons of scale. Like, I have a ton of scale. Right. You don't need, like, if you focus on hits and you add up enough of them, they actually add up to quite a bit of scale. So it's not that we have no scale. Um, like in Germany, we're the number one sort of bigger than Vivo, I believe, this month. Um, but it's a combination. Bigger than David Hasselhoff, though? Well, who knows if he's in our network. <laughs> no. um, but it's a combination of hit TV shows and top top tier creators. Here in the U.S., I think we're the eighth largest video publisher on the web. But it's not with everything. Right. It's with a very finite you know, group of people. That's great. Uh, Jake, so I, I like this book ending. Yeah. Because on the talent side, right, you're the collaborator, right? Mm -hmm. And, and you, when we were talking out the hallway, it was like that was kind of your entry point or one of them. You're like really getting the joy out of finding different individuals and across multiple spectrums. Sure. Um, what is it that you spot in people that you go like, I want to work with that particular individual or that channel? Yeah, there... There's a lot of different things. I mean, one of the things that is, I'd say, across all of the folks in this book, sort of the unifying feature that um, anyone who's worked in sort of creative industries can appreciate is they're all incredibly brave. Like one of the biggest impediments to getting started with creating videos or, or getting involved online, whether individual or organizational, is just putting that second and third video out like a lot of people put the first one out and then they start focusing on everything that was wrong with it and so what i look for when i look for folks to collaborate with or or for books that that i've done in the past is who's who's got a real clear voice like who knows exactly who they are and and what they're trying to do and not only that but who has built a community that likes to exist uh even when they're not just talking about the video that that person or those people have posted. And, and I think that that's been so cool, um, not only in, in this project, but in other collaborations that, that I've had with, with influencers is just understanding how those communities have a life of their own. And those people who are, who are commenting on pages and creating their own content that's based on the content of, of those artists, how it's sort of, uh, uh, become sort of a, a functioning environment itself. And so that's been 
that's been super cool. And and regardless of of whether that's with um, sort of the top of the iceberg creators like like Rhett and Link or or someone like Matthew Santoro, or um, if it's with uh, some of the people that we feature in the book, like there's a a group called HD Piano out of Chicago, and it's piano lessons. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I never would have envisioned that I would have gotten ex- as excited about learning about piano lessons on YouTube. But it's one of those things where they just found uh, they just found a lane and they do it so well that that it makes you, you know, it gets you involved in in uh, in an activity than you other you otherwise, you know, would have just assumed you were over. Uh, yeah, once you'd gotten older, but so you you studied sociology, yeah, right? You remember that, don't you? I do a little bit, <laughs> bits and pieces. But the, here's what I mean: a, a lot of what you're saying is kind of tied into that, like the mm-hmm. social evolution of it all. The sure. creators have fans who then create, and then those like it's just a domino, like an endless domino effect. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about some of the softer things either of you, you sure know, have discovered? And I know the data will tell us like one thing, like where attention is but the yeah. the other piece of it is like softer yeah so i'll tell you a great story that's in the book there was a um there was a kid who lives in uh he lives in england and he was driving a dump truck at a construction site and at night he loved playing call of duty and he wanted to make highlight videos of his call of duty montages and he would he would put his call of duty highlights together and then he would set them to music and he would put them on YouTube, but his highlight videos kept getting flagged for third-party copyright infringement, and so he was frustrated. So he started looking for um, he started looking for uh, music that had that didn't have copyright issues, independent music, independent artists to sort of back his Call of Duty highlight montages. So he puts those on, and, and it comes from a place of honesty. He's making these videos because he's he's. He has an honest interest in the content and people are responding, but they're starting to respond more Mm. to the music than his videos. So he starts realizing, oh, well, I'm helping artists get discovered and and, um, I'm learning about more music and I love music anyways. Flash forward, he gets, you know, more than 100 million views a month now and He's launching artists in a major, major way. His channel's called No Copyright Sounds. And then what was so funny to me, the the irony of the whole thing is that labels started signing his artists that he was breaking <laughs> and then slapping copyright infringements on their music, not realizing that they had built fans on in this community right. of like, hey, let's all enjoy this stuff. Let's all take it and we'll give your music new life. We'll give you exposure. It was it was a it was this sort of wonderful cultural trade based community, and they're like, well, we're going to sign this guy so that we can bring him back into our our archaic model. That's pretty. And and uh, but he realized, you know, through that sort of what the community was telling him, he essentially created a new way to to run a record label and run a record community. Um, on that digital platform. Well, that's phenomenal. And, and Reza, I, I would imagine just with like the business changing, because that, that was a huge problem, obviously, when I was at Machinima or at the, in the early days, it was like, wait, that's our stuff. Don't do anything with it. But it's actually selling your game even more, right? And there's there's this evolution of just the business models themselves. Um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, what you've seen and how you navigate just sort of breaking the rules and like recovering from it? Well, well we're, you, it's interesting because for a long time we were in this cycle of breaking the rules, right? And then, and that was early days of of YouTube, and and I, I think it's getting harder and harder to break the rules and and be successful, right? So, Google has implemented content ID, publisher ID, all these tools for rights holders to come and claim copyrighted materials. Um, the idea of fair use is being litigated more and more and more and more. And this is like the the idea that you can take somebody else's photograph or video feed and because you're wrapping it in a slightly different story, you know, use that in a long period of time. So I think we're actually in and, and then you add brand safety to it, which also includes misappropriation of characters mm-hmm. and third party rights a lot of times. 
I mean, you add that all up, and I think we're getting into an environment that's going to get more and more and more structured. It's not going to be the same way, structured in the same way it used to be, though, right. because there's you don't necessarily... I'm not suggesting anyone should take a song, put it on a video, and put it out because you're automatically subject to some form of litigation. But there are now tools that sort of mitigate a lot of that stuff, but not all of it. Right. Um, and so... We're, we're, it's actually starting to lock down, and that's a function of how big the business has gotten. Over how does, it, the last how does that years. affect the creativity, right? Because I think sometimes there's like, was it? Well, thievery is the best form of flattery. That's a horrible uh, sure. of that quote, but you know what I'm saying. Look, <laughs> imitation is the and, and all great artists steal and and all of that stuff. That's absolutely right. But right, so like you take the culture of sampling in hip hop music. Everyone gets paid in that culture. Um, so it's cause it's, it's worked itself out the first time somebody did it and it went, they, you know, they released right. the first rap albums with, you know, people's bass lines and whatnot and drum beats and all that, that took many years to sort out. But today that's standard issue. Producers cut all kinds of tracks together from third party music. Everyone clears everything and it's not now, now there's an entire process and system around it. If you're in the hip hop business so that you can actually make a living off of it. Cause no one wants to put out a ton of work and put your heart and soul in anything and then come out the other end with nothing at the end. Oh, yeah. Right. That's not, I don't think a vision any artist has. Yeah. We had a, a number of conversations in the book about the, about people sort of, uh, taking content and repurposing it and putting it their own and, and taking it without asking. And it's, it's really a double-edged sword. It, it used to be, you know, in, in the earlier days of YouTube, I would say even up to, you know, 2013, maybe even 14, you, the, the, when the goal was to go viral, you know, the idea was, what you a know, viral video. yeah, the idea was no matter how it popped, you know, whether it was someone else who took your video and put it on a different, you know, put it on their channel or whatever, like it was always going to come back and, and benefit you. And there are a number of, of creators who are in the book who actually pop that way. McJuggernuggets comes to mind. Yeah. Um, but but there also the other side of that is now because there are so many more platforms that run independent of each other. Um, you know, there's a lot of instances where you get a little shine off somebody stealing your video, but you don't get the traffic and the exposure on your main platform. So you really have to be, you have to be, you have to have a presence on a number of, of platforms to sort of protect against that. Oh, yeah. um, but it's, uh, it's, it's something where people are, are a lot more concerned about it um, than they used to be when, when, you know, digital video is more of a, you know, an Oklahoma land grab. This also, it's, it's such a community. I mean, the same thing happens in podcasting, right? Like the best way to get your podcast out there is to appear on another podcast or put a little piece together yeah. or somehow like find a way to collaborate with a, somebody who has a bigger platform than yours. And there's something to be said about like, at least in the, in the early days of either of these platforms, whether it's television, yep. you know, YouTube, it's like, Hey, we, we're going to all collaborate and work together and just figure it out. And, yep. and then, you know, the, the process starts. Um, you can't have, uh, you know, all the risk and things that you guys mentioned, uh, and also just growth without brands and advertisers. And I think, how do you mitigate that risk for them? Cause I know a, a marketing manager or a CMO might come to the table and like not quite fully understand how to integrate their brand into this ecosystem. Um, so how do you, like, how do you go about educating them on both the ups and the downsides of, of getting involved with your creators? This has been an ongoing conversation we've had since the company started. It actually started by being- I'll get that. You know, yeah, Hello? On two. Um, <laughs> no, no, go ahead, sorry. It, it's, it's funny. <laughs> I was thinking in my head, you know, that's the first time it's gone off in the hour. What the fuck? No one cares what it's called. <laughs> yeah, like, what's going on around here? Now, I'm actually a little bummed out. On the 10s and 20s. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I mean, as a former agent, You're the 33rd I'm getting caller. like a little edgy that that was right, the only right. call that's happening. Um, the 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 it was me. Uh, that cool? you, you yeah. That's like a, that's like a, that's like sometimes uh, I won't have an email for like an hour and I'm like, what is yeah? Is, what, is Gmail broken? Yeah, like, <laughs> I call Google like, hello. Yeah. Yeah. No text. No emails. No phone calls. Like life's you know what's happening. Um, the brand thing has been part of the business from day one. So brands have brands want to put tell their stories in places where there's high engagement. That goes. I'm, I'm being captain obvious. So, so the early days, there was a lot of brands that came in. And so managing that process has been, has been uh, like the center part of the business of studio 71 from day one, 
the 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 business is really two things. Selling pre-roll ads is very easy, relatively speaking, because it because creators don't. It's not a lot of conversation. It's something that happens before the video starts. Um, putting us telling a story with a brand, right, or having a creator, you know, whether it's a call out or engage with a product or help a brand sort of, you know. Um, reach the audience that the that the creator has is sometimes a much more complicated thing, yeah. and it's complicated for two or three reasons. One, the big one big reason is the further you go up the food chain in advertising, the less connectivity they have with this kind of content. What I mean is they're watching less and less of it, right? The the CMO of a large Fortune 500 company is probably not spending a lot of time trying to understand what's happening in this environment by watching a lot of content. They're trying to understand it from where are the people, are these the right customers for me? Am I getting when I buy, a, let's say, partner with a Retin link? Is that the customer I want to reach? So they're looking at the top level for the data and the metrics and ROI and all that. And, and the reality is the further you go down the funnel, the more people really understand what's happening here culturally. And sometimes there's a gap, right, where somebody in this decision tree says, well, we got to make it like an ad or we got to do something that is not really of this culture. And, and we end up in, in, in a somewhat challenged space. But for the most part, if you have a good salesperson and you have a strong sort of partner on the, on the talent side, you can usually navigate that. And, and the reason I think brands want to engage with this, this universe is like branded content, the biggest challenge with it historically is you go m make this perfect piece of content right. and then you got to convince some broadcaster or somebody to watch it. And usually that's really tough. Usually those things don't get fully engaged in the way that people would like. In, in investing in sort of talent that's putting out content regularly and you're sort of going into their universe, into their shows, it's much easier. The audience and distribution piece is usually really figured out. Yeah. And so there's opportunity to create real reach and real engagement um, for a brand with, with a set of consumers. Um, and so that's, 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 that's the opportunity. And I think it's a, something that a lot of people see. And I think, what, you know, also it's like, the willingness to give up a little bit of control like you, you had that anecdote about like we've created this beautiful piece of content here it is as opposed to like they make what kind of videos and you really right. I, I know we did a, a 15 day uh call of duty live stream yep. and subway came on board as a sponsor yeah and it took a really long time for us to convince them that this was the right move because you know they were worried about the language yep. and how people talk to each other and i think the final line was all right well as long as they don't say fuck while they're eating the sandwich like that was that, that was the that's the culture versus the numbers right like it's i think that's so well stated what you wanted to add to well that. it's just to that point it's the the mentality is not that we're trying to deliver the perfect message from on high like you are a, you have a you're trying to have a, a leading voice in a conversation and if that conversation isn't ongoing then then people are are going to forget about you um, because there's a lot of interesting conversations to be had. And so the part of the difficulty is that even as as, as late as, as a few years ago, you were still seeing companies doing like derivations of got milk, you know? <laughs> like think about how old and tired that was. And here there are people putting out five videos a day and just the, there it was almost like, a, it was just a language barrier. You know, we did, I remember one, one of the, uh, bringing up games we had a conversation with a gamer who's in the book named kp she does a she's a streamer and one of the things that struck me is she was talking about how she likes to have four different monitors going at once she's like playing a couple different games she's in a couple conversations and she's listening to music on a different one and the reason she does that is because she says because it's just more efficient right. and that definition of efficient is so different from the definition of of a uh, a C-suite executive at a Fortune 500 company who would think, no, efficient is you get one thing done, you do it well, and you move on to the next thing, and you don't waste time or get distracted. And and you, the only way that you can jump that gap and and become fluent is if you if you 
become a part of the conversation. Mm -hmm. It's like learning a new language. Like you can study the books, but like if you're not out there trying to order at the, the restaurant or find your way to the library or that pretty much is the extent of my Spanish. But the, you know, if you're not... <laughs> Bibliotech. Yeah, exactly. There, there you go. That's a great uh, great dodgeball reference. But Oh, wow, very good. Yeah. The, um, no, that's that's really the... You can dodge a wrench. You can dodge a ball. You know, I played dodgeball this weekend with a bunch of 12-year-old girls. Yeah. And I got you should tell the rest of that story, like by the way. Nobody did you throw did you throw one a little too hard? Wait, say sorry, say that again. You you uh, did my, one this my, weekend. I have a young daughter and we yeah. went on a daddy daughter sort of fun day with a bunch of her friends, and so we ended up in a dodgeball game. It was like twenty on twenty. And schmuck that I am was like, you know, going back to high school with the heat seeker. Yeah. And I and I definitely got admonished for it. So you guys well, that's funny. My daughter, my daughter just turned thirteen, and we went and did laser tag. The uh, uh, that was fun. I was I felt I felt like Jason Bourne that day. I was like I was breaking kids' necks and everything. We did we did the dodgeball at the trampoline park, where it was a uh, it was a kid's birthday party. Oh, oh, it's because you're just the the. Like the golden shot is where you graze one foot and it hits into the other foot, oh, but yeah. they're eight feet. Yeah, it was. Yeah, the uh, you know the yeah. There's there's a. All right. Yeah. No, 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 this is good because I watch this transition. Speaking of young ages, eventually, <laughs> eventually these audiences grow up, right? And yeah. It's, it's actually it's almost it's in my notes actually. Uh, so you guys did me a favor. Um, but they grow up, right? Over the course of five, ten years, you go from thirteen to eighteen to twenty, and is that audience still the same, you know? And how do you evolve with them? The reference I was thinking in my head is like Harry Potter, right? The first version of the movie was very like kid friendly. And then yeah. by the time you got to, you know, the fifth one, it's like dark and like, whoa, this is Harry Potter, right? He grew up, he's a man now. So um, if you look at Studio 71 or its content as sort of a life stage brand, or do you, like how do you navigate sort of the evolution of the audience I'll, itself? You start now. Sure. I was just going to say, I think a lot of it depends on on how people experience your content and your channel. Like if you're a um, if you're someone who is a family friendly channel and, and part of the reason people watch it is because they, you know, they're their kids and they're watching with their parents. And it's it's something that you'll always be able to do together. I think it'll be easier for that channel to um, maintain their same audience um, without having to do sort of abrupt pivots as it would if you're doing um, toy unboxings and you're trying to get kids, you know, when they're going off in elementary school. Um, but it's, I, I think there's, uh, audiences because they, and Reza, you can speak to the numbers behind this, but because audiences, when they like a channel, they'll binge it really hard and they'll become devotees. Um, I, I think the, the stronger connection they have with the community, the longer they'll stay, they'll stay around. And, and, you know, if they're just sort of, if they're just sort of going down the rabbit hole like they would with a Netflix show and it's and the content is one note, then they'll probably move on to the next much quicker. There's a cycle to to to, to fame and a relationship with an audience and, and it's not permanent, right? And the cycle is affected by a bunch of different things. So one is publishing volume, right? So if you're if you're taking a break and you come back, sometimes it just doesn't come back. And there's a, many factors for it, including your content. But but essentially, we've we've seen now several generations of talent. I don't want to say come and go, but definitely evolve. Right. And it doesn't always go up and down. By the way, sometimes it goes up and sideways, or it takes a lot of different directions. And there's a lot of paths. Like you take the original Wasabi Channel, right? You had Alex and Roy, mm -hmm. who were doing it as young kids. I think they were in North Carolina. They were somewhere in in the Carolinas, and they were you know have, doing goofy kids videos doing I think, music video parodies and sketches and they moved to LA they sort of you know went their own ways I think in a in a positive way Roy started sort of guava juice so he went and built a completely new audience for young boys a, game, a little bit of gaming and a lot of just being goofy um, in his apartment and having a great time um, and and Alex is sort of you're watching him mature but he's still reaching that teenage girl because I think there's the whole lifestyle that he sort of puts out there right. as a as a young sort of clean cut YouTuber 
Um, so that's a very distinct pivot from where they were when they were 15, 16 doing stuff when they started out to today. You know, Roman Atwood went through that evolution. There's a lot of people that have sort of evolved, but there's no question if you don't evolve at some point, the jig is up. You're going to have to listen to you. You know, I find sometimes talking to creators, uh, especially if they don't live in Hollywood, right? Like I think you move to LA, you kind of start to learn the ecosystem a little bit. You're in North Carolina. You're like, this is my world. I'm going to do it my way. And, you know, I've been in situations where, uh, Hey, we really need you to do this. And I'm sure that happens in traditional artist management as well. But like, how do you, how do you help them grow up in, in that regard? It's all a series of suggestions because like what the one thing that I would say is different about this class of creative people versus traditional creative people is these people at the end of the day, there's the joke of, you know, you'll never work in this town again. That doesn't apply here. Like essentially you could burn all your commercial relationships and still get on a video and do whatever you're doing through social media and reach a fairly large audience. So you could, in theory put your entire thing in jeopardy, but you'll still reach that audience, right? Um, Where that's not the case, right? So like you just take sort of um, traditional entertainer that gets, it's too hard to deal with, Monique, right? No one's heard from her in years unless she comes out and says, Oprah did this to me and -and (laughs) so-and-so did that to me. That was because she was a nightmare to deal with. Right. Right. So she's been shut out of the business for a, a large part because no one wants to deal with that kind of crazy. And so um, that's that's the that's the big difference here. And so giving counsel is much more about helping people get there versus any hard and fast rules. And that's one of the challenges in working with this talent class. It's, it's the it's what makes it unique. It's definitely a big difference. Um and so, you know, somebody, the, the people learn from the reactions of the Monique, these gatekeepers, you know, you piss off Disney and you want to work for Disney. That doesn't happen very right. long. You know, that doesn't last very long. I think it's, it's interesting. Another thing that, that I think of when you bring that up, talking about the, the sort of suggestions as opposed to the, the directives from on, on high, it's, it's much more like, um, you know, if you look at the way power is generated now. Like it used to be that there was a central power station and that central power station fed all the energy out to the grid. And now everybody, you know, some people have solar panels, some people are, you know, creating their own biofuels in their gardens or whatever. Everyone wants to generate their own power. And the grid is still necessary. Without the grid, people can't get their power and, and there's uneven amounts. But but people want to be able to create themselves. And so what you can do is you can give them resources and suggestions to become more powerful. Um, But if you try to tell them that, look, you just need to do exactly what we say because we're the central power station. And at the end of the day, we generate power. They're going to go generate for someone else. I like that. That's a good analogy. Um, I was going to make a bad power joke, but I won't. (laughs) Um, Brand safety was like kind of the buzzword of the day or the buzz phrase of the day. And I know you guys just launched a new product um, that uses AI and human, you know, eyeballs and ears. Um, So why start that now? Because I I felt like brand safety has always been an issue and maybe there was like a huge hockey stick and sort of the the awareness of it um, as a uh, as, as an affront, I guess, t- to some extent. But talk, walk us through like how you guys are approaching brand safety yeah. in this new tool context. Uh, look, um, brand safety became an issue. Look, I think there's some things in society that we've all agreed upon that are not cool. Like, let's say racist thought, terrorism, but things like that, that we'll call very extreme sort of points. All the things I love. Right. That's your, that's your <laughs> I guess. Um, and so when ads are running in those environments, that's not good for anybody, right? That's not good for, for the brands. That's not good for Google. That's, and that's definitely not good for the creator community because a lot of brands go, wait a second. I mean, I do want to reach a younger audience. YouTube is one of the better places to do that on the, in, in, in any sort of media that you're going to buy. But the reality is no one wants to expose their brand to that, right? It's just too... That's not, no one wants that. And so that there's been a series of these moments that have happened over the course of the last year. In fact, it was April of last year 
when the first sort of big incident sort of occurred. I think it happened in March, but the effects were in April. And then there was a second one in October. And then there was Logan Paul in January. And then there's the new thing that sort of hit a few days ago. So there's been mm-hmm. the sequence of like, what the fuck is going on here stuff. And so around April, we saw a huge hit in, in sort of revenue coming from the YouTube ecosystem. We'd already built a bunch of tools that were pulling information about our videos so we could search them for brands like, hey, who drinks Coke? Well, if I go ask a bunch of people, I'm going to get a bunch of bad data. But if I see what you have on your Instagram feed and on your YouTube video, I can start to say, all right, this is who drinks Coke and so on and so on. And we were using that to inform who to recommend to brands to do business. And so that tool suite of tools can be used in a a different set of ways. And so one of them is brand safety. So when you pull all the text data, so every video on the internet has a ton of text on it, has a description, has a closed caption, has metadata, all that is funneled out of a video. And we search it for 2,300 keywords, right? And it's some topics that brands, not every brand wants to be around content that's a, that's maybe safe, but talking about depression or not every brand wants to be around political content sure. and so on and so on. And it doesn't mean creators shouldn't express that stuff. It's just that brands, in this case, the customer's always right. The customer may choose not to be in that environment. So we can self-select against that. The next thing is there's a ton of things you can't see, right? So, I mean, or you can't see in just text. You got to actually see it. So we do a bunch of image recognition tools. We use all of the tools. There's a bunch of cloud stuff that's Mm -hmm. out there of which the Google sort of cloud API around vision is the best because it's, they're already scouring for brands, you know, brand safety themselves. So it's the most efficient way to find out what's happening in the video is there a swastika in the video for some reason someone firing a gun is there in a you know is there highly suggestive or sexual or nudity or whatever that may come up mostly which doesn't come up in our videos like i don't think we we're not we're not signing a bunch of people that have a lot of political speech in what they're doing especially not really aggressive sort of right or way left of center stuff and so but we're now able to 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 look at that in the last process and this is where it gets kind of very technical is person looks at it. We've got built up a tool set that allows us to click, you know, it's about 26 different things we're looking for so that we know what's really going on in these videos. And we essentially not every video that a person may put out is brand safe, right? And so the way to get to brand safety is not to say this channel is safe or not safe. Right. It's to say this video is safe versus anything else. And so that you can avoid all the issues that have happened. And that's that's how we've sort of set it up. It's exclusive sort of for our content creators. And and look, the broader conversation of of brand safety, let's assume we exclude the hate speech and terrorists and i'm sure there's something else but whatever those you know extreme religious view kind of stuff we take that out um then there's a broader discussion of what is and isn't safe right and that's a much that's going to be an ongoing dialogue that happens and it's going to be a dialogue that changes so what was safe in the 50s is very different than today and it's going to continue to evolve as as sort of we move forward. So that's the thing that everyone's dialing up and down, right? right? So so we have for the, for the most part a product that when we say something is safe, we've we've taken out a lot of the curse words, all the you know sexually suggestive stuff. It's kind of G. There's a there's a there's a grade above that, and so on. It right. looks very much like other rating systems, so the brands can actually make choices um, and have and have flexibility around it. And that's 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 it. And and on the flip side, brands are auditing what's going on. I mean, as there's all this news stories, there people are looking at everything. Yeah, and they're so to pull the money out of it, there's like a number of finding alternative means of reaching those audiences. But that's- I think that's going to prove to be very hard. Like if yeah. you really look at it, and and this is the other part about it is I think it's going to be very hard, and I think it's going to be very difficult for a brand to say I'm just not going to participate. I'm going to take my shit and go home mm-hmm. because. There is a reality that if you just say millennial, millennials now in 37, 38. So that's that's getting up there, right? They right. own homes now. They buy cars. They're in the stock market. They're making company. They're doing a lot of stuff. 
and you go younger, I think I think I think it's going to be very hard not to be playing in the YouTube, Instagram, to a lesser extent, Facebook mm -hmm. and Snap and Twitter sort of sandbox. I think that's going to be really <laughs> yeah, and maybe. Uh, maybe HQ. It's going to be right. hard to not be in that in that sort of sandbox if you want to sell your products to these customers. Uh, so you guys wrote a book, yeah, as we've as we've established. Yes. Um, why? Like, what do you want people to walk away from? You know, walk away with when they not walk away from it. What do you want them to walk away with when they encounter the book? They go cover to cover. They should go forth and do what? First, they should buy. <laughs> they should and it's it's easy to find because you can just go to creategreatvideos.com and it's right there it's it's amazing how that works the internet's a wonderful place um i think there's a lot of there's a lot of different things different buckets that people will get out of this book as the title suggests they can read these vignettes and there's 40 or 50 of them in there and it'll help them make better videos, whether you're an individual or you're an organization. And you can read this book very quickly. Um, and uh, you can sort of pick and choose off the table of contents exactly what you want to learn. And, and um, you're going to get some really easy sort of actionable strategies that have been... Uh, I'll not get it. Hello? Yeah, that have been learned because these people <laughs> have been... They're, they're the best because they've been spending every one of their weeks for the last several years um, making videos. And and they may be young and they may not look like executives, but, but they're the experts. Um, I, I think culturally, the way that the video generation interacts and the way that they communicate, um, I think you can learn a lot of things by understanding the way that they consume content. You know, we, we like to say that we're all a part of pop culture now. And anytime you... Uh, try to communicate with someone, whether you're sending them a tweet or whether you're texting them or whether you're DMing them or whether you're emailing them, calling them. Don't call them if they're Gen Z because they don't want to exactly. talk to you on the phone. But snap, snap yeah, you, your competition for their attention are not only their family and friends and their colleagues and their work projects, but also their heroes in life, um, the athletes they like, the imaginary characters that they follow. The competition for people's attention has never been greater. And so um, video really is, a, is an efficient way to sort of uh, communicate and entertain and get people's attention. And so whether you're doing that personally or professionally, there are stories in this book that can teach you um, how to be more effective at that and, and, and how to create content that gets people to react. Um, there's a great uh, chapter in the book that focuses on a, a group called Extra Credits, which is a bunch of gaming executives who now use the knowledge that they picked up on what makes gaming uh, what makes games interesting and they've applied it to teaching history. And so they've got a whole series of videos on the Punic Wars from Rome and all of those videos have millions of hits because when you watch them, it's not a dry lecture. All of a sudden they're, they're the way the, the content moves and it's, and the way the, the characters sort of come in and out visually. And they're not even doing a lot sort of in a, a animated or high production value sure. sense. It's just a pacing thing. Um, and, and the more you can understand about that sort of rhythm and pace um, with how the video generation likes communicating, whether you are collaborating, um, trying, to, trying to cross intergenerationally co collaborate in the office, or whether you're trying to communicate um, sort of up or down the generational ladder at home, I mean, there's, there are things that you can pull out of the book for those as well. I love that. I don't. I have a much more simple view than, than, than you do. That's why you got top billing. That's right. Yeah, top yeah. billing because I'm simpler. <laughs> I, I mean, look here. Here, look. Anna Winter used to sit at the pinnacle of what was driving beauty culture, right? And, and arguably, still does to some level. But she's been completely disintermediated by a group of people living God knows where who just like putting makeup on their face, and they're not necessarily profound experts in it. They don't know, you know, uh, the designers at Chanel or who Virgil Aboa is or the next hot whatever is right. coming down the pike. And, and, but they're starting to set the trends. 
And so when you look at a lot of companies, when they look at their domain expertise and are like, wait a second, I'm getting, I'm getting like my way of communicating historically is being disrupted by, you know, this and beauty is one where they get, they take it very seriously because I set the trends. Well, no, not always. Cause somebody yeah. else may be setting the trends and you may be missing the trends as a byproduct of that. And, and so they, they're very, they're very anxiety prone when it comes to, well, how do I play in this space? Right. And the second thing is the way they make content and the way historically a lot of people have made content is very different than the way this creator class does, right? It's not as expensive as most people think. If you have a point of view, you will succeed. There's some, and if you right. and if you actually treat it as not not just I'm selling you something or I'm let me talk and then don't give me feedback, but if you treat it as like a, a more of a two way thing, you can build an audience, and that applies to everybody. And I think that's lost because it seems very complicated, and we got to win fast. And and in this space, that's not that's not really the the, the case. And why, you know the the vogue sort of socials aren't what some random you know exactly. girl from Poughkeepsie has done and that the idea that that girl is suddenly you know and I don't want to compare Kylie Jenner to that girl but look Kylie Jenner selling a ton of makeup Jeffrey Star is selling a ton of makeup yeah. there's all they're they're moving product and so they're starting to creep into the experts space and I think if 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 you think about all the new companies that are coming out, a lot of the legacy companies, like look, Tesla is literally video and tweets. That's the entirety of the marketing, right? General Motors will spend a billion dollars launching a Chevy insert brand, yep, or a Ford whatever. Or these little Tesla pop-ups, where right? You go, and you go to Meanwhile, <laughs> this guy has no dealerships to deal with. Exactly. And he's and he's literally doing his marketing. And so why? Because he's captured everyone's imagination. He responds and he's he's singularly unique. But it doesn't mean your brand couldn't have a similar voice that way. Because it's not like General Motors has no technology. They just never market their brand that way. Yeah. If they don't go. Well, yeah. And I think a lot of the misconception is that platform isn't for us. And that's not necessarily the right answer. The right answer is like, how do you integrate your brand in a way that still, right. still represents who your brand is, but also represents that culture you're trying to tap into? Right. I mean, look, again, a couple of videos. I'm like thinking rockets are the coolest fucking shit I've ever seen. They're landing, <laughs> they're taking off, they're going on this. I'm like, I, I haven't given a shit about rockets and you know for fucking 25 years, and all of a sudden I'm now like all about rockets because this guy's putting video out that people are sharing and is super compelling. And he's and it's and, and in that case, he's selling a vision, but he's selling it across two large businesses, yeah. and that's probably not all the marketing they're doing, but that is the that is the public face of the, of the company is a person. And and that's really, that to me is um, the power of this that a company, an individual can unlock if they get the right service. Well, to, and to build on that, that 15 seconds of rocket video, of seeing that rocket video land is much more powerful than like listening to a 15 minute TED talk on rocket launching. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sure. Or if you, but the but thing is, the option is if you if I'm that user or that viewer that wants to learn more about it, the ecosystem is set up so that instantly I can become not necessarily an expert, but I can educate myself more deeply. Like your newfound infatuation with you know yeah. rock sure. watching, like oh, sure you may go to watch the TED talk after sure. that, but it's but that nugget that I think part you to it. part of the problem is is a lot of um, a lot of companies and organizations and trade associations they you know. They're like, well, we just need to make a TED talk, and then we'll have a video <laughs> or a podcast. Or we, <laughs> yeah, we we need to do a podcast, and by we need to do a podcast, they're thinking like maybe they'll do five episodes, and it's sort of like you know how many episodes have you have you done of this oh, podcast? I'm in the two hundred plus range, right? Yeah, and and how many did it take before it it oh, was about, uh, at least five? Like there was <laughs> there was a while. I mean, you're absolutely right. There's this. 
gross oversimplification or overcomplication on either side of that coin. Right? Well, well, if you think about if we're staying in the in rockets, the energy that it takes for a rocket to go up like its first fifty feet, I think is you can look it up, but it's like equal to what it takes to get into space from that first fifty feet. I just like looking at rockets. Right, but but if you think about how you're building a content channel. Like you're gonna have to, in order, if you want to get, if you want to get off the ground, like you're gonna have to put a lot of energy into it to get it off the ground, and then once it's off the ground, it uh, it scales quickly and more efficiently. This is good. You you picked up on that and like that was off the dome. You should be like in a hip hop cipher. Um, you want to know what's funny is that somebody from the hip hop world told me that uh, that rocket energy equation. Oh. Who was it? Yeah, it was uh, uh, Charlie Jabbly, who used to he used to be uh, he used to run street execs in Atlanta. <laughs> they knew him as CEO Charlie, but um, and no, now he's Charlie tangent, Rocket. But no, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, as we wind down, uh, I got a couple more questions. But um, a lot of people look at this as new media, right? And it's been even though it's been around for a long time, and I think a lot of the the ability to reach an audience or the need to reach an audience and cut through the clutter, that is like an age old, like since the beginning of marketing and commerce and buy our product, that's been the problem that needs to be solved. And I think it goes back to kind of what you're talking about, that oversimplification or over complication of it. At the end of the day, it's the same mechanics of businesses of your, um, what, is there any other sort of primary thing that's tried and true, like the 22 immutable laws of marketing that, you know, never die. Like, what have you guys learned that just will not go away as far as, you know, this content creators in relationship to culture and brands and businesses? Big question, but. I'm, I mean, I think people are starting audiences have a couple things. I think audiences have a much uh, more fine tuned authenticity and bullshit feature uh, filter than they used to. And so they're looking for um, they're looking for uh, voices that want to engage in conversation to echo what we've all been talking about. Um, and and then I think the uh, you know in terms of wanting to cut through or shoot through the clutter, the the big thing to know is you just we've got a lot more bullets, and so it's not about you know you're not trying to shoot one cannonball through the sail. Um, you, you keep firing and that's, you know, that is a, that is bordering on sports metaphor, simple, but, uh, you know, along the lines of what was it, Jordan, you miss a hundred percent of the shots you don't take, but that's yeah, <laughs> it was really good. As Reza throws up in his mouth, I'll pass him the microphone. <laughs> Michael Jordan was so great at math and you're wearing Jay's today. Which, tell, tell me about these shoes. They're, I think force. No, that's it. Yes. Yeah, they're they're nothing. I think they're a reissue. You know, the usual hundred percent of the shoes you don't wear. That's true. I've got a lot more shoes than I'm not wearing <laughs> right now. But what about those, the unworn shoes? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I, I don't even remember what the question was, but I'm assuming is what are the Im things that the aren't laws. changing the laws? I, I, I mean, look. Here's what's interesting about the laws. Like funny is always funny, right? In in theory, right? Funny things will always find an audience. But what is funny and how we're engaging with funny, like especially when you look at Insta Instagram and the memification even of sports and all these things that are really kind of interesting. Um, I think it's evolving what what like what some people will think is funny versus versus not and, and right. what will make you laugh and how quickly you can tell a joke now. That used to be, you know, five minutes in a stand-up routine could now be, you know, told in a in a 10-second meme or whatever it may be. Um, so so I, I think the way we get information is gonna change radically, and our ability to absorb lots of it quickly is gonna is gonna be sort of what changes. I, do I think like when you think about Rhett and Link and why are they so relevant and so popular? That's a relationship dynamic. Right. I wish I had a friend like Rhett or Link and and I may have of that friend, but I just like that dynamic. And are they funny? Of course, they're funny. Are they consistent? Yes, they're consistent. Do they present incredibly well in terms of how they if you look at the, the volume of work, it's been, you know, pretty, pretty unprecedented in terms of the quality that they've sort sure. of delivered. But really what makes them work? It's the two of them together doing their thing and it's unique to them. 
Um, and I think, and I think those, the, the individualness of all of yeah. the entertainers is what's not going to change. Right. Lily Singh's voice, which is an immigrant story. And she's playing her dad who's straight off, fresh off the boat and the mom who's really traditional. And she's suddenly this hip hop girl kind of living in, <laughs> in Toronto and now LA. That's a whole thing. And, and now, and everyone can relate to that to story to some extent. Right. And I think that's, that's the, that's the, and, and, you know, what do you, you got your finger out there? Well, Those are the things that are going to be <laughs> forever. Right. He was just testing the wind. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the things I was going to say about about that is that one of, one of the differences is that sometimes you don't know what your story is until you start talking. And so those, uh, you know, there, there are some people who start creating content and then their audience tells them what is unique and interesting about them. And there's no reason that brands can't do that just like individuals do that. We've got a story in here about a guy named Jordan O'Brien who started off um, – doing comedy things and everyone just kept asking him about his hair and how does he get his hair to look like that and where are his shirts from and he had this sense of style that he was he didn't realize uh how interesting it was it was something that he cared about but people didn't know that he that other he he didn't know that other people cared about the way that he curated sure. his style so now he's now he does that his channel's called gentleman's cove and it's a a, a style and culture modern gentleman thing and so um you know one of the lily's lily has refined her voice over the years and, and rhett and link began as just wanting to talk about they just tabled conversations that they were going to have on the way into the office when they were carpooling and they just started having those conversations um on video and on their on their podcast and, and so it was it was authentic they weren't trying to recreate it they weren't trying to script it as Reza said, it was it was an authentic voice. Yeah, look, uh, out of whether it's Studio Seventy One or the creators, it's it's the story of longevity and being able to pivot through like and receive feedback like you talked about earlier and like digest it and turn it into something. Um, as we wind down, I have a pop quiz for both of you. Uh -oh. It's really easy. All right. It should be easy. Give it takes the New York Times one. I do. I do. It's I get like eight quiz. out of ten, eight out of twelve. <laughs> That's usually where I end up. With. Which Studio Seventy One creator are you? Um, no, uh, complete this phrase for me. Innovation to me is being able to see an opportunity when it's nothing. Spoken like a true manager. Uh, being able to act on your instinct before you know it's safe tell your story and your story starts to form um all right so tell us about the uh tell us give us one more time where we can find the book where we can find you all um sure the book is you can find it it's plugs. on it's on amazon but you can also just go to creategreatvideos.com um and i'll be at the copacabana club no i mean <laughs> <laughs> Resizot yeah, at everywhere. Not that many resizot. That's true. That's true. Yeah, I'm easy to find. Yeah, I, uh, I'm uh, Big Daddy X at Hotmail. No, the <laughs> <laughs> Verizon.net. I got a Verizon.net email. You, the usually, usually at Jake Green or me. By the way, that's pretty dangerous. But I'm an Apple guy. I kind of feel like right. it's not as bad. Yeah, exactly. As, as you know, Hotmail. My my favorite are the people that still have the couple's email address. Oh, <laughs> and they're broken yeah. up. Yeah. Oh wow. Well, that's that's a whole different. Uh, Which one? Has that that's one. like the that's like an unmade rom com of the early two thousands. <laughs> neither one. Neither one with yeah. Who gets the email address? Uh, thank you, guys. Cool. You have a good time. Yeah. yeah thanks. Um, everyone, this has been another installment of Innovation Crush, and we will talk to you next time. <laughs> <laughs>